The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. No one likes to be deceived. Nobody likes to be lied to. None of us like to be deceived or lied to. Back in 2010, if you were here with us at TBC, we did a summer series called House of Cards as we did a whole summer on the family. And in that, I talked about a young man who lied and deceived his mother or tried to anyway. His name was was Brian. Brian invited his mother over for dinner. During the course of the meal, Brian's mother couldn't help but notice how beautiful Brian's new roommate was. Her name was Jennifer. Brian's mom had long been suspicious that their relationship was more than platonic, and uh, she became more curious over the meal as she watched the way that they interacted. Reading his mom's thoughts, Brian volunteered, I I know you think, I know what you must be thinking, Mom, but I want to assure you that Jennifer and I are just roommates. About a week later, Jennifer came to Brian saying, you know, since your mom came for dinner that night, I've been unable to find this beautiful silver gravy ladle that my mom gave to me. You don't suppose your mom took it, do you? And Brian said, well, I doubt it, but I'll send her an email just to make sure. So he sat down and he sent this email. Dear Mom, I'm not saying that you did take the gravy ladle from the house, and I'm not saying you didn't take the gravy ladle from the house. But the fact remains that one has been missing ever since you were here for dinner, your loving son, Brian. Several days later, he received this email back from his mom. Dear son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Jennifer. I'm not saying you don't sleep with Jennifer. But the fact remains, if Jennifer was sleeping in her own bed, she'd have found the gravy ladle by now. (laughs) The moral of that story is don't mess with mamas, right, ladies? There you go. Here's the reality. The reality of it is it's one thing to lie and deceive your mama. It's another thing to lie and deceive something that pertains to eternal life. The lies and deception of the Roman guards that are laid out for us in Matthew 28 make eternal differences and have eternal consequences. Yeah, there are a lot of evidences you can look to support the resurrection of Jesus. You can look at the evidence of the broken seal, and I'll talk about that in a minute. You can look at the evidence of the moved stone. You can look at the evidence of the grave clothes that were laid in order. You can look at the evidence of the empty tomb. You can look at the evidence of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. You can look at the evidence of the changed lives of the disciples. One piece of evidence that's often overlooked, and I've never preached a sermon just on this section. I've referred to it, but never a whole sermon on just this section, is the lie that the Roman guards told about what happened to the body of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 and following, what we find is a concocted conspiracy. It's a concocted conspiracy. In verses 11 through the first half of 15, 15a, what you find is the plot of the story. The plot of the story. But really the story begins in the previous chapter. So so back up with me to Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, to see the beginnings of this story. It says in verse 62 of Matthew 27, On the next day, which is one day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you know what this means. If not, let me explain it to you. The chief priests and the Pharisees were the Jewish religious leaders of that day. And so the Jewish religious leaders of that day met with Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor. 
Rome was ruling over Israel at that time, and so the Romans were in charge, and Pilate was the guy who commanded everyone that was there. And so the Jewish leaders came to Pilate, the governor, and he's the one who had ordered the execution of Jesus. They came to him, and in verse 63 it says, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver, if you write in your Bibles, underline the word deceiver. This is what they thought of Jesus. He was a deceiver. He was not one who spoke the truth. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. That deceiver said this, He said that on the third day that he would rise from the dead. So Pilate, if you remember what Jesus said, he said he would spend three days in the grave, but then he would rise again. So we're asking you, verse 64, Pilate, as a result of that, to give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Lest the disciples come and they steal him away. The Jewish leader is not concerned that Jesus is going to be resurrected. They're concerned that the disciples are going to come and abscound with the body. That's their concern. So we're afraid the disciples are going to come and steal him away, and then they're going to tell people he's risen from the dead. And so what we want you to do, Pilate, this last deception would be greater than the first deception. Pilate, we're asking you to send a guard. So in verse 65, it says, Pilate told them, you have a guard. Here's a guard. Take the guard. Go and make the tomb secure. In verse 66, and they went and they made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Let me give you a little bit of history here. I got into studying this this past week. It's quite interesting. A Roman guard had anywhere from 20 to 30 soldiers in it. So a unit or a Roman guard, 20 to 30 soldiers. These guys drew the short straw. I mean, imagine your commander calls you in. The captain says, okay, we've got an assignment for you guys. You're one of those 20 to 30 guys. And he says, uh, here's what your assignment is for the next three days. You're going to sit outside a tomb and make sure nobody steals the body on the inside. Boring. I mean, can you imagine anything any worse? For three days, you're going to sit outside a a piece of rock, basically, and you're going to stare at that rock with 20 to 30 other dudes, and you're going to make sure nobody comes to steal the body. Not only that, you know nobody's going to come to steal the body because the Roman seal has been placed on it. The Roman seal signified the power of the Roman Empire. The seal was quite a simple thing. Basically, you would take hot wax, you'd place it in one place, hot wax in another place. In this scenario, hot wax would be placed on the rock that had been rolled in front of the tomb, and then it would go to the, the rock that was in the, the, the rock that was there. You'd place a cord across it, and the power is not in the cord. It's just a piece of string, but the power is in what stands behind the insignia on the wax. It was the Roman Empire. Breaking the Roman seal was punishable by any number of means, and one of the things was death. So it's possible if you get the wrong judge or the wrong Roman ruler that you could be killed for breaking the Roman seal. And so these guys have to go out and guard the tomb of a dead man. I love what one author says. He says, never has so much attention been given to the tomb of a dead man. Never had a crucified man had the honor of being guarded by a squad of soldiers. So here is Christ in the tomb, surrounded by Roman guards, 20 to 30 men who are looking over, guarding and watching over the tomb of Jesus. And you can imagine the chatter between those guys. I can't believe I've got to do this. Can you believe three days we've got to be here? This is going to be the most boring detail we've ever had. Nothing will take place. Little did they know what awaited them in just a few hours. Little did they know that their lives would be forever changed. Little did they know what they were about to witness and the evidence that they would display for us even today. Well, the story continues. The guard is in place. If you drop down to chapter 28, the story of the guard continues beginning in verse 2. 
Behold, a severe earthquake occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone, and he sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning. His garment was as white as snow. And the guards, if you write in your Bible, circle that word, same Greek word that's used all the way back in 2765, same word is used here, and the same guards, what did they do? They pulled out their shields and pulled out their swords and pulled out their daggers and began to fight. Is that what it says? And the guards, when they saw this, they shook for fear and became like dead men. You bet they did. You bet they did. The Roman seal had no authority over the power of Christ and, and their shields and their swords and their daggers and their, and, and their spears had no power for the person that they're seeing. There's no way they could protect themselves with what they're seeing. They became like dead men. I love what one author says about this particular scene in this particular scenario. He says, how conditions have changed since Friday. The crucifixion was marked by sudden darkness, silent angels mocking soldiers. But at the empty tomb, the soldiers are silent and angels speaks. Light erupts like Vesuvius. The one who is dead is said to be alive and the soldiers who are alive, they look as if they're dead. Something happened. Something took place. There's some type of change that took place here, and the scriptures tell us what that change is. So what happens? Well, if you drop down to verse 11, it says, While they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that happened. If you look at verse 11, underline the word guard again. You can draw lines. That's what I've done in my Bible from 2765 to 284 to 2811. It talks about these guards in each of those places. Well, the guards went back to Jerusalem and they reported to the chief priests all that happened. Now, pick that apart for a second. First of all, it says, how many of the guards went back? What's it say? Some of them. Now, if you're inquisitive like I am, I want to know, what about the other dudes? Where'd they go? You ever thought about that? Some of the guards went back to report to the chief priest what happened. I'm curious about what happens to the other guys. You know, you can see some dude, he's trucking, he's headed home. He runs to the door and says, Mama, get all your stuff together. We're out of here. Armageddon has come. It's end times. I'm telling you, let me tell you what I just saw. Here's another thing that's interesting. Who are the first people to see the resurrected Christ? I mean, the stone is rolled away. A bunch of pagan Roman guards are the ones on the scene when Christ comes alive. I've got other questions. What happened to those guys? Did they believe? Were their lives eternally changed? Scriptures don't tell us. We don't know. A lot of unanswered questions. But what we do know is they went back to the chief priests and they reported all that happened. So the chief priests gathered the elders together and they counseled together. Notice no one denies the resurrection. No one denies there's an empty tomb. These guys must have been quite believable because they came back and the chief priests and the elders, the leaders of Israel, they hear their story, all these Roman guards, and they believe their story. There's a number of reasons why they should believe their story. First of all, if you are a Roman guard, You you were the best trained military person that day. They were the special forces. They were the elite men of that day in the most, in the most, uh, uh, the best military that existed. In Roman law, there were 18 reasons, there were 18 laws why a Roman soldier could be martyred, why he could be put to death. 
Soldiers could be sentenced to die if they broke any of 18 Roman laws, writes Josephus, regarding the military. These included serious offenses like murder, treason, desertion under fire, mutiny, but also less serious crimes like disturbing the peace, striking an officer, deserting one post, leaving or sleeping on the night watch. These guys had a real reason to stay awake. Their very necks could be in the noose if they didn't if they deserted their guard duty or fell asleep on that duty they would certainly be punished for it so these guys go trucking into town they gather together the chief priest they hear their story the chief priest gather the elders they hear the story they don't deny that something has taken place that's miraculous and so what they do they say here's the cash boys take it and run a large sum of money we have no idea no idea how much Take the money and run. And by the way, if the governor finds out we are politically connected, we'll cover your hide. We've got your backs. And Matthew goes on and he says, at the end of verse 15, he says, they took the money, they did as they instructed, and this story is widely spread among the Jews to this day. So Matthew says, as I'm writing this, I want you to know it's a story that's being told. When did Matthew write the Gospel of Matthew? He wrote the Gospel of Matthew in the 60s, the late 60s A.D. Matthew is writing three decades after Christ has died and been resurrected. He said, by the way, this is the same story that's on the streets of Jerusalem today. They're saying the guards were asleep and the disciples stole the body. Now we're going to talk about that theory in a second. We're going to talk about that theory in a second. Here's what I want you to know. That they concocted a conspiracy, and we're going to pick that apart in a second, but there are other conspiracies that have been concocted since because somebody has explained what happened to Jesus. And so over the years, liberal scholars have come up with different theories to explain the empty tomb of the resurrected Christ. The first one is the swoon theory. What they say is Jesus Christ didn't really die. He didn't really die. They're trying to explain away the resurrection. They say Christ did not really die. Basically, he was, cruci- he was scourged, he was crucified, he was taken from the cross, and those that took him from the cross, they, they, they didn't recognize that he was dead. They, they literally embalmed him, if you will, not the same way we do today, but what they did is they wrapped him in, in uh, cloths and they put spices with him and then they stuck him in a tomb and somehow, he, in, the, in the spitefulness of that tomb, he, he was able to be refreshed. Josh McDowell wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. In that, he writes about the swoon theory. He said, the explanation of this theory goes like this. Christ was indeed nailed to a cross. He suffered terribly from the shock, loss of blood and pain, not only of crucifixion, but also of scourging, and he swooned away and didn't actually die. Medical knowledge is not very great at that time. The apostles thought he was dead. We're told, are we not, that even Pilate was surprised that he was dead already. The explanation assertedly is that he was taken from the cross in a state of swoon by those who wrongly believed him to be dead. He was laid in a tomb, and the cool restlessness of the sepulcher so far revived him that he was eventually able to issue forth from the grave. He was able to push back the stone, overcome the Roman guard. He was never dead, and he's still alive. Wow! That's like Disney and superheroes at that point in time. 
I mean, a person who's gone through scourging and crucifixion, spear thrust into his side, nails in his hand, nails in his feet. He, he, he's wrapped by guys who are, are bright men. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man. Scriptures tell us about them. Joseph gives a t- donates a tomb to Jesus. These are bright men. That The men who would go to the tomb of Christ were bright men. They would write most of the New Testament for us. These are men who came to the place, and yet some would say Jesus only swooned. He didn't die. N.T. Wright is a British scholar, Anglican bishop, who wrote a book, Surprised by Hope and the Resurrection. Talking about this, he said what they're saying is Jesus didn't really die. Someone gave him a drug that made him look like he was dead, and he revived in the tomb. But here's the problem. The answer is Roman soldiers knew how to kill. They did it every day. They knew death. They understood death. They were around death all the time. And to assume that Jesus only swooned, mean the Roman soldiers who did that regularly were mistaken, Nicodemus the Pharisee, Joseph Arimathea, who embalmed Christ, somehow missed the fact that he was still breathing. The swoon theory. There's another theory trying to disprove the resurrection of Christ. It's called the wrong grave theory. If you remember the scriptures, Jesus was buried in a very specific tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, the other Marys had gone to that tomb. One theory espoused by liberal thinkers and liberal scholars is that the disciples were so overcome by grief, so overcome with with all that they had experienced, that they went to the wrong tomb. They were in such an emotional state of confusion that they went to an empty, unused tomb. They looked in there and thought that Christ was alive, but they were mistaken. They were at the wrong grave. You ever bury somebody you love? You ever bury a close family member? I've done five funerals in the last two and a half weeks. I could take you back to every grave right now. If you bury somebody you love, if you buried the man you thought was a son of God, you don't think you would remember where the tomb was? I mean, really? You don't think you would remember where it was? And some would say, well, in their state of confusion, their state of grief, and their state of being overwhelmed with everything, they just went to the wrong place. That is grasping for straws. Grasping for straws. Then there's the theft theory. It's the theory that Matthew says 30 years later, this is what's being taught in the streets of Jerusalem. They're saying the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus while the guards were asleep. Well, there's several things wrong with that story. First of all, the guards were asleep, 20 to 30 men. Nobody heard the disciples come, roll away a massive stone while they were on duty and steal the body of Jesus, take him out of the tomb. Nobody heard that they all slept like that. I sleep like a dead man. When I go to sleep, nothing wakes me up. They must have had 30 of those guys like that. (laughs) Not only that, but think about the logic of this. Think about the logic. If the disciples really stole the body of Jesus, what would they do with it? They go bury it somewhere else? Throw it in the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, Mediterranean? Because what happened to those disciples? Well, over the next 20, 30, 40 years, we know that every one of those disciples died a martyr's death. And so if they robbed the body of Jesus from a grave, basically what they did is they died for a dead man who said he would come alive. They died for a liar. They spent the rest of their lives preaching that which is a lie, that he was resurrected. Read Acts 2. Peter says, this Christ who you killed is resurrected. They spent the rest of their lives preaching a lie, and they died. They died 
knowing that a corpse they had stolen was dumped somewhere else. It's ludicrous. You see, the lie of these soldiers helps prove one of the further evidences of the resurrection. The body of Jesus was somewhere. N.T. Wright, and surprised by hope, says we could cope, the world could cope with the Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside the disciples' minds and hearts. The world cannot cope with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb. You see, the world cannot cope with Jesus who comes out of the tomb. Maybe you can't cope with that because it calls for radical transformation in your life. You can't understand this truth and know this truth and believe this truth without having to make a decision. In fact, Paul says if the resurrection hadn't happened, our faith is in vain. He says it is the watershed mark of Christianity. And you might be saying, so what if it's true? So what if it's true? I mean, so what if this lie proves the resurrection? So what if the resurrection is a historical reality? So what? Well, if Christ really did rise from the dead, if Christ really did rise from the dead, then first of all, he's who he claimed to be. And he claimed to be the Son of God. Secondly, his words have to be true. In his words, he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so if Christ is resurrected, if the historical reality of the resurrection is true, then he's he claimed to be the Son of God. His words are true. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And finally, eternal hope and eternal life is found in him and him alone because his words are, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if the resurrection is true, you've got a decision to make. You have a decision to make whether or not you will trust him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sin and eternal life or whether or not you will. This is the good news of the gospel. And so my question to you this morning is, have you personally experienced this? Have you personally experienced the good news of the gospel? Have you personally trusted Christ your Savior? Not do you know this story, not do you know about Jesus, but have you personally accepted him? Have you done that? I'll never forget the first time we went rappelling. Bev and I were invited with uh, several other TBCers, and we went to a Young Life camp called uh, Frontier in Buena Vista, Colorado. And uh, we went there, and, you know, we started off at the bottom of this uh, cliff. You can see the people rappelling. We watched them for a little while, and from where we were looking up, I guarantee it was about 3,000 feet high you had to rappel. And then we climb up this trail, and you sit on the edge, and uh, I realized this is a foolish decision on my part. I mean, I weigh 205 pounds, and uh, I'm looking at this young guy. He's sitting on the edge here, and he's got me harnessed in this little whatever it is. And, and I look at him, and I realize he's about 18, 19, 20 years old, and uh, he's probably a $10 an IQ who's been, our kid has been doing this for two weeks. And I'm going to put my life in his hands. Not smart. I looked at him and said, do you ever drop anybody on this thing? No, sir. You ever have anybody that weighs 200 pounds go down this thing? Uh, not many. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, sir, have you ever repelled before? And I said, well, you know, I, I read a magazine about repelling when I was getting my oil changed at a place on 31st Street in this town that I live in. And so I read about repelling. Sir, have you ever personally repelled before? Well, you, you know... National Geographic and Discovery show these guys repelling. So I, I've actually watched that, knowing we were coming here. 
Sir, that's not what I'm asking. Have you ever repelled before? Actually, you know what happened, young man? Last spring break, this was summertime, spring break, we went with some friends up to Arkansas. We rented a cabin together, and, and my friend brought repelling stuff, and our family was supposed to repel, but the day we were supposed to go repelling, an ice storm came in, so we didn't actually repel, but we hooked our stuff up to the, uh, probably weren't supposed to do this in a rented house, but we hooked it up to the balcony area and went up and down the wall is what we did. <laughs> Sir, that does not count. Have you ever personally been repelling before? Uh, no, young man, I haven't. Okay, just push off. <laughs> right. Obviously, I made it to the bottom, and we survived. I wanted to go up and kill him after, but we survived. Hey, there's a big difference. I can tell you there's a big difference between studying about repelling, watching TV on repelling, and repelling off a balcony inside of a house than there is to go 200 feet down the side of a mountain. I had never personally repelled. Some of you are like that. You know all about Jesus. You can, you can teach the story I just taught. You know about that. But have you personally, sir, repelled? Have you personally accepted Christ as your Savior? That's the question I have for many of you. Many of you know Christ as Savior. Are you sharing with others that good news? You get the privilege to let others know that the tomb is empty and Christ is alive. And eternal hope is found in Him. And if you're doing that, what a great day to praise a Savior and to celebrate all He has done for you. The resurrection, hoax or history, it makes an eternal difference. These guys, they deceived, they lied, they were jokes. When you look at his picture, what do you think? What you used to think is world-class athlete, Tour de France champion, cancer survivor, live strong, philanthropist, foundation. But now when you look at Lance Armstrong's picture, what do you think? Liar, deceiver, He's a joke. In the first century, what was being perpetrated is, hey, these guys stole the body of Jesus, right? These cowardly disciples stole the body of Christ. And this was what they were doing. They were lying. They were deceiving. It was a joke. And the result is, what we find is a lie that helps prove and validate The resurrection of Christ is a historical reality. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the reality of the risen Savior. We thank you that he who came gave his life on our behalf, and that life, that life provides for us eternal life. Thank you that the tomb is empty, and thank you that Christ is alive. And because of that, we worship you. If you're here today, You may know all about repelling. You may know all about Jesus. But have you personally accepted him and the offer of forgiveness for your sins? Have you done that? Not do you go to church. Not are you a good person. Not are you religious. Not do you know the story. But have you personally? Why don't you make sure this Easter? If there's any doubt in your mind, just pray with me right now in your own heart. Lord Jesus, this Easter I thank you for the resurrection. I thank you for the truth of the resurrection. And Lord Jesus, thank you for being who you claim to be. Thank you for being the one who forgives sins. 
And so in this day, I ask you to be my Savior, to forgive me my sin. Or maybe you need the power of the resurrection in your life this day. To resurrect a dead marriage, to resurrect a dead heart, to resurrect a dead relationship, to resurrect you from some habit that you find yourself ensconced in. The power of the resurrection is yours if you know Christ as Savior. You have to stay in prison where you can be free. If you know the Savior, walk with the Savior, honor the Savior, what a great day to say thank you, Savior. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. Bev and I will be in the back. We would love to pray with you about anything, anything on your heart this day. Some of you need to trust Christ for the first time. Several folks have today, today of rejoicing. Several folks are new believers as a result of our worship time together, our teaching from the Word, and we give God glory. Maybe that needs to be you. Or maybe you know Christ, but you realize you're not living for Christ. This can be a day of confession and change and cleansing for you. Whatever God has in your heart, you can do business in your seat. You can walk to the back and pray with us. Whatever you want to do, it's between you and God. So let's stand together and sing one final song honoring our Savior. If you desire to be prayed for, just come to the back and we'll be glad. Yeah. 